Good morning, afternoon, or evening. Please delete as appropriate. Hello there, and welcome to this episode number 410 of the Material Podcast. I am Andy Anatko. Florence Ion is off this week, but she's going to be back next week for our big Google I.O. episode. Yeah, Google I.O. is next week, Wednesday, May 10th. And normally we'd be spending like the penultimate episode before it talking about, ooh, what are we expecting? What are we hoping for? And ooh, what are the big rumors? But there are a couple of reasons why we don't have to bother with that right now. One, because, oh my God, the, the hardware leaks that Google has suffered over the past month uh, or two have been so extensive that, honestly, the only the only thing we don't know about the uh, Pixel 7a or the Google tablet, uh, excuse me, the Pixel tablet or anything else that they might be releasing next week is, is the presenter going to drop it during the demonstration? And because probably a lot of this stuff is going to be pre-taped, eh, probably not. So try, try to get really, really good odds on that if you're if you're at your sports book betting on that. So yeah, no surprises are no, – we don't really think there's going to be anything hardware-wise that we haven't already seen before. And I'm not even talking about leaks that happened this week. It's really, 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 really fresh fruit this week. Uh, and uh, But there's still the question of how is Google going to make it – through this new AI landscape, we just don't know. So we're expecting Sundar Pichai and everybody else to be talking about uh, the entire future of the company, whether that's 10 years or two years. We don't, we just don't know. And anything is possible. Anything could be, anyone could be blackberried at this point, depending on, depending on what they do. But we've been looking forward to Google making a really, really coherent explanation of where they see AI going, particularly in light of the fact that they no longer have the freedom that they've had for the past two or three Google AI, Google IO keynotes of saying, Hey, here's something, here's a Google experiment. Hey, look, here's Lambda here. Hey, here's Palm. Here's these new, uh, large, large language models that we're working on. And here's a quick demonstration of what it can do without any, giving you any indication that we're actually going to be shipping it as part of anything on any sort of schedule. And now they've got to either show off an immense cornucopia of new AI features that are going to be putting put in front of a put on the menu immediately, or they're going to have to double down on the idea that look, Microsoft and OpenAI, they're being reckless and irresponsible. We are being safe. We are there's there's a there's a reason why Subway sandwich company can sell you a foot long sub for four dollars. That's because they're not they're not being quite as cautious as we are when it comes to <laughs> safety and healthy food, are we? So it's it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting thing to take a look at. I'm uh, really the I'm also kind of curious to see what Sundar Pichai's perspective and attitude is. There's been a lot of rumblings of dissatisfaction uh, about his leadership at Google and Alphabet. So I wonder if, I don't think that he's, you know, he is, he's, he's got his go bag all packed and ready to go when he's, when he starts to smell torches outside his window or anything like that. But I'm, you know, I'm wondering if he's going to be using this, this, uh, this venue to make sure people understand that he's the right person for this job right now. And that if shareholders and members of the board are thinking about making a replacement, good luck trying to find someone who'll take this terrible, terrible job for only $250 million a year or whatever his latest uh, package is, is, is gone. There's, there's a lot riding on this one, but we'll be talking about that all next week. 
of I should uh, I also want to talk about there's a follow up we should have to uh, uh, the breaking story about Chromebooks that we talked about last week. There was a uh, there was a uh, consumer interest group who was who had published a study on the the fate and fortune of a lot of the Chromebooks that schools had purchased in 2000 uh, after the uh, COVID lockdowns had really really uh, goosed that kind of market and making they were making the case that chromebooks they don't have a really long life for a whole bunch of reasons they're hard to repair and one of the they were saying and also one of the big things that they're saying is that uh, a lot of them they a lot of the ones that were bought by schools were obsoleted very quickly because according to the according to the, uh, the, the according to this report a lot of them were uh, at end of life or getting or not getting any more security updates. Well, uh, one of our listeners uh, decided to give us some feedback, uh, very, very valuable feedback on Twitter. Uh, Thomas Raukamp, uh, I'm going to quote here, Google guarantees eight, I'm sorry, the, uh, we mentioned uh, uh, five years of updates uh, as, as cited by the study and that, it, and also that if, that if uh, schools were buying them secondhand, they might lose two or three years of that. And so perhaps they were buying something secondhand that would only get two or three years of updates. And so that could be a, a big problem. Uh, so Thomas writes, Google guarantees eight years of updates for Chrome OS from 2020 upwards, not five. And of course, independent of the system on a chip guys, I really like you, but I'm getting a little tired of people discussing Chromebooks and not even having the basics down. Don't be mad. We're not not mad. Very very grateful. As a matter of fact, um, yeah, we 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 should have dug a little deeper on that. The how long a Chromebook lasts and how long they're going to be supported with updates depends on the vintage of the device. You're right that since 2020, uh, Google guarantees pretty much eight years of updates. However, before that, it did depend on the chipset that was being used. It depended on a lot of different variables. As a matter of fact, if you go to the support page for Chromebooks, they actually list pretty much every Chromebook that has ever been sold and telling you when the end of life is. But it would be it, it was careless to suggest that it's five years and out. Uh, I just checked, for instance, uh, just an hour ago, and my Pixelbook that's uh, I've had for years and years and years is still going to be supported by updates through 2024. So it's not as though there's it's not as though there's a there's it's not like buttermilk it's not like there's a expiration date on the thing so yes uh, thanks for pointing that out now I did want to uh, close off something that we started talking about last week Flo and I uh, because I thought it was kind of interesting the uh, I, I I went to an estate sale over the weekend uh, I was we were sort of as part of our conversation we're sort of teasing like how that was going to go. And I thought I'd let you know. Uh, I was looking forward to this because there were a lot of pictures of it. The I also had because of Google. This is why we talked about it on a Google podcast. That I use Google to find out lots of information about the estate sale that had not had not been made public yet. That didn't really help me in any way, shape, or form. But it also helped me to learn a little bit about the person who used to live this place. I was kind of relieved to find that no, it's not that he died, and this is the family who's closing down his house. He actually was in his early 90s and was moving from finally from his home to uh, an assisted living facility. I found this out later on uh, at the at the actual estate sale, an assisted living uh, facility near his children. So there's a not not the saddest possible ending uh, to that uh, kind of story. But I found out this while waiting outside for the estate sale to open up. Uh, he was a professor. He was a commander in the uh, in the Navy. He had a really, really interesting life, uh, traveled the entire world. And a lot of the people who were there an hour or two before the estate sale actually opened at 9 a.m. 
were former students of him, of him, former colleagues, people who weren't close enough uh, to the family to be invited to, oh, by the way, we're packing up uh, dad's granddad's stuff. If there's something you want, come on by. Uh, but close enough that they wanted to have something from their, from their, one of their favorite professors, one of their favorite colleagues, and learned a lot more about him than I was able to learn through Google. And was really, really very happy. I, I, I don't go to a lot of estate sales because that's a way to, <laughs> that's a way to find yourself just surrounded by clutter. If it's really, really close by and I'm kind of in the mood for it, yeah, I do enjoy it. Uh, be, and oftentimes the stuff that I'm looking for are, uh, I'm not, I'm not trying to find, Oh, here's a, uh, here's the Dresden codex. <laughs> Here, here's something incredibly valuable that, uh, that's been mislabeled and I can auction this off at $3 million, even though I paid like three cents for it. No, actually my, my most interesting finds are usually like in kitchen drawers. Like I like k- kitchen tools where I, I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to spend like $80 on a pepper mill. But when I see this really nice pepper mill, like in in a, in a cupboard at an estate sale, oh yes, I'll, I'll take it for like the five or ten dollars it is. It's it, a pepper mill is a pepper mill, but yeah, that's 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 exactly where my where my price level is. Uh, it's also it, it's like it is like burglar fantasy camp in a way. Uh, I, 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 this was really occurring to me as I'm, as I was doing my shopping, because this isn't, if you haven't been to an estate sale, it isn't like a yard sale or a garage sale where there are tables outside on the lawn and everything's ticketed and priced and, and organized. It's, there's some organization, particularly if the family has like hired a, an estate sale company to run the sale, but pretty much you are, it's like being a burglar, like the door's unlocked, you walk straight in. You rummage through, <laughs> you rummage through shelves and open cupboards and and open drawers and anything you find that you like, you take. You stick it in a bag that you brought with you. The only difference is that there's a card table near the unlocked door they entered through, where you Venmo the organizers uh, a negotiated price for the the swag that you that, that you grabbed. Um, it is. I, I'd be, but I'd be lying if I didn't say that it is an interesting way to see how other people live that what kind of adventures did they have what did they value um in this case obviously this was the family of course and the the homeowner already took the stuff that he wanted to take into assisted living the family took the stuff that he didn't he didn't or couldn't take with him but still it told a really interesting story i was very impressed with the fact that it's not just uh, all this the residue of his world travels but also all the interests that he had uh he was uh, i i felt I, I recognize some stuff between uh, his life and mine and that I, I also I, I love I love to see like all of his art supplies and all of his art portfolios where you could see just like just like me, not terrible. It's not as though like this was brilliant stuff, but you could tell that he was enjoying uh, doing life drawing and he was enjoying uh, uh, practicing art. Uh, and there was also uh uh, I, I took home uh, one of the, one of the one of the nicer things I took home was a was a, a hand painted like rice bowl with like blue painting of a dragon with like three claws inside it, and I don't know if the person who was at the card table taking the money was a relative or something, but as soon as she saw it, she said, "Oh, that's you know that that was his own rice bowl and he bought it so and so at such a place," and it actually made me feel pretty good to tell them tell her that yeah you know what I I was. When I saw this in the photos and I learned a little bit about him, I was like, ooh, that, if that's still available, I, I want to take it because I like the story behind it. And I have to – I imagine that part of the difficulty of emptying out a house like this is that 
obviously you don't know where any of this stuff is going to go. And, you know, to yes, stuff that you didn't, uh, uh, as a family member, you decided, Oh gosh, I mean, that was, I, I have so much, such great memories of that encyclopedia, but I have, that would just be clutter in my house. Nonetheless, even if you don't have that kind of emotional attachment to it, it must get you kind of curious as to what happens to it. Uh, there are a lot of people who are like the, the people who are already like waiting in their cars for an hour before I showed up, like 45 minutes before the sale opened. All these people who were like pickers, they, they, they had a, uh, had a lean and hungry look. I think as Shakespeare described uh, Brutus or something in the, and Julius Caesar, where you could tell that that's this, this is the sort of person who has this big wad of big roll of, of cash. And they're just like looking to like, you know, what can I, what can I flip? And it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I like to think that the, that if, if the, the people who ran that sale were able to tell, take that story of the rice bowl back to the guy who owned it saying that, no, this isn't somebody who just like bought a, gave us a flat $15 for all the crockery in the, in the, in the, in the cupboard. And he was going to pick through it later on and throw out whatever he didn't like. And maybe this thing that you enjoy several times a week, every time, every time you had rice uh, is just going to be like in a, in a landfill somewhere. No, there's someone who not only appreciated it for what it was, but also appreciates uh, the role that it had in your life. I'm also, I'm also happy that he had a, a one of those fish spatulas. I'll, I'll, I'll wrap things up, but, uh, I just, you know, that, 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 that kind of spatula that like supposedly for turning fish, it's like, it's like a, uh, it's like a trapezoidal sort of thing with like cutouts in the middle of it. And you never used to see it until like six years ago. And then it became like one of the spatula. It, it got elevated into like superstardom among spatulas, like one of the spatulas that you always have, even if you don't cook a lot of fish. And uh, it was it was a nice bit of kismet because I was actually like almost I almost bought one like in the supermarket a few days earlier, and because oh I actually you know I've been thinking about buying getting one of those because it might help me like it might be useful for whatever and oh yeah. <laughs> rummage through the drawer and hey look spatula also had also bought a really awesome spoon I know I'll I'll I'll, I'll, I'll get after this but oh you, know, you just you just pick it up and it's a really nice spoon. And I just, I didn't know what I was going to use it for, but it was too nice a spoon to leave behind. So I hope I'm, I hope I haven't caught the estate sale bug because I, I have this website, uh, estatesales.net, I think it's called. And yeah, estatesales.net that will show you, you just plug in, Hey, here's my zip code. Show me anything that's within 10 miles. And we'll give you this beautiful like listing of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, yard sales, estate sales, local auctions and things like that. And I found, I found another cool one that's happening, not terribly close by, but close enough that I could go there. It starts tomorrow. It starts, uh, on Friday <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, come on. We're not going to just be one of these people who just goes to estate sales and goes to yard sales every single weekend. Cause again, I have enough. Tr- I I live inside a yard sale. I live inside a garage sale. Sometimes I'm 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 trying to improve on that sort of that part of my my uh, my clutter acquiring behavior. But you know, sometimes you see you see that picture of like the the twenty or thirty pictures of like what the rooms are like, and you see, ooh, that's a big case full of DVDs. That'd be cool to like maybe they get some DVDs that I want. And, and what the hell it gets me out of the house? <laughs> outside is sometimes better than inside. 
Okay, but let's let's get let's get on with the show. Uh, really cool show. Uh, I'm really excited about talking about this, even if we are unfortunately uh, without flow this week. Uh, a Google AI researcher quit Google last week so he could spend this week talking about well, regretting some of his life choices, uh, but talking about the dangers of AI and why he wanted to quit so he can spread the word. Uh, and this has turned up the heat on a lot of movements to regulate artificial intelligence. And there's a lot to talk about, a lot to digest there. Uh, and also, once again, a massive threat to public safety has spurred Google and Apple to develop a joint feature for all of their phones. This one is not quite as dramatic or deadly as COVID, but it should, it solves a problem and a danger problem that I think that needs to be solved. We talked about that and a couple other things after this message. Well, lots of us express regrets about our life choices from time to time. Usually that happens on a Tuesday afternoon. Tuesday afternoons are kind of built for, you know, long-standing regrets, but it almost never results in the sort of coverage that Dr. Jeffrey Hinton's <laughs> expressions received this week pretty much everywhere. And well, no wonder he's a pioneering AI researcher who quit his job at Google last week, specifically so that he could air his growing concerns about the speed at which modern artificial intelligence systems are evolving and its potential dangers. But first, let's, let's get some background in here. Dr. Hinton is a very, very big deal. Uh, like a drinking game in which you down a shot every time the phrase godfather of AI pops up in a profile of this man would leave you absolutely schnockered before you got to the bottom of the first page of Google results. His big contribution to the field was just his dogged faith in neural networks. The idea had been kicking around since the 1950s, but by the 1970s, which is when he he entered academia, it was almost considered as seriously as like faith healing. It was kind of a nutty thing to want to devote your, your, your life's work to. However, Hinton had the insight that a system that could train itself based on immense piles of information, that was a good idea. That had legs. The only things missing were computing power and those immense limitless piles of training data. And as you and I both know, both of these things would change very, very quickly. So when the papers that he started co-authoring during the internet age started circulating, it was very much the starting gun of the modern artificial intelligence race. Like here, here's how intense his, his impact was. His, his uh, 2012 research paper demonstrated that deep learning was finally a real thing with far-reaching applications that only started off with identifying photos of kitties and just continues to steamroll through today. It was just a nine-page paper, but it had such a blockbuster impact on the field that within one week of publication, Baidu, the Chinese tech firm, Uber firm, uh, offered Dr. Hinton and his two grad students who co-authored the paper $12 million for just a few years of their time to, hey, help us build AI. It turns out that there was, uh, that at the time, China did not see the tactical importance of artificial intelligence. However, they had their own researchers that could see it, even if, uh, even if uh, the government couldn't. And he was the person who uh, just said, oh my God, this Hinton guy, oh my God, this paper, please get, find some money, make this guy some, an offer. We can finally like kickstart some really incredible things that are going to be as important to us as manufacturing has been. Um, he talked the over Hinton talked the offer over with his team. And then the three of them decided to form a company solely for the purposes of fielding offers for their services. They didn't have a product. They didn't have, they didn't have like patents or anything like that. This is how, how hot 
their understanding and their research acumen was. Uh, bidding was super lively between Baidu, uh, Microsoft, DeepMind, and Google. And after several days, he ended the auction at $44 million and accepted a deal with Google. Not necessarily because, uh, I mean, he, he probably left uh, millions of dollars on the table. He just decided that Google would be the best home for his kind of research and for his kind of team. Well, okay, so fast, that was 2012. 20, he became part of Google in 2013. Fast forward to just last week. Professor Hinton is 75 years old. He's devoting half of his time to Google, and he is having a phone call with Sundar Pichai to discuss his resignation from the company. This week, he gave an interview to the New York Times, which got an immense amount of traction. Most of the hot takes seem to be along the lines of, Godfather of AI, yes, take another drink, escapes Google's muzzle-like censorship to spread a dire warning about artificial intelligence and how we shall all be ground under the iron boot heel of et cetera, et cetera. But uh, the MIT Technology Review got a longer and much more thoughtful interview. Uh, Hinton's move here is a lot subtler and a lot more reasoned than what these hot takes are, uh, are inclining. First, Professor Hinton uh, clarified something on his Twitter that he thought was misleading about the New York Times piece. I'm quoting here. Actually, I left so that I could talk about the dangers of artificial intelligence without considering how this impacts Google. Google has acted very responsibly. So this is not uh, Google, Google. He escaped from Google or anything like this. As a matter of fact, what he's been saying has been consistently very positive about how Google uh, uh, sees its role and its responsibilities in developing artificial intelligence. One of the things that he said in that context was that he, that's one of the reasons why he felt like he had to resign because people would, if he says that Google has actually been very, very responsible and very, very thoughtful, people are going to believe that a lot more readily if he no longer works for Google and he's free to, free to say uh, whatever, whatever he said. Also, when you read about Hinton's background, you can see that he really is quite a thoughtful and philosophical kind of guy. He's he's not one of these like Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory kind of people who you know just lives within his own brain. He's very much of the world and not not he's too uh, too young to be a hippie, but very very much hippie esque uh, flavors to the way he thinks. He's very again very thoughtful and philosophical. His uh, 1970 undergraduate degree was in experimental psychology. Okay, experimental psychology. Maybe he is a hippie, and that actually, that is quite that is that is the right the right age. Anyway, uh, anyway, he he would later resign from his research position at Carnegie Mellon and start work at the University of Toronto in Canada because he was concerned that most artificial intelligence research in the United States was being funded by the Department of Defense, and he thought that that was kind of a bad entanglement. He certainly didn't want to help create artificial intelligence kill bots, stuff like that. Well, before 2022 and the explosion of OpenAI and ChatGPT, he thought that it would take 30 to 50 years before an artificial intelligence emerged that was more intelligent in any way than, than a human being. He had a quote from, uh, I think, three years ago that I like a whole lot. A quote, I think we should think of artificial intelligence as the intellectual equivalent of a backhoe. It will be much better than us at a lot of things, i.e., like its powers are stunning but limited and very, very, you know, mundane. 
but that's not quite his belief anymore to uh, as as far as i can tell uh demonstrations in the past year of what's possible as ai is being fed more and more data has led him to believe that artificial intelligence are starting to eclipse the human brain in some ways as well he now thinks that that 30 to 50 years was way way off again something he said on twitter is much clearer than what i read in his interviews uh, he's saying, quote, I now predict five to 20 years, but without much confidence. Oh, by the way, here, he's responding to another Twitter user who asked him about that 30 to 50 years uh, time frame. He, uh, continuing, he says, quote, we live in very uncertain times. It's possible that I'm totally wrong about digital intelligence overtaking us. Nobody really knows which is why we should worry now. In the uh, uh, MIT uh, Technology Review interview, he said, quote, I have suddenly switched my views on whether these things are going to be more intelligent than us. I think they're very close to it now, and they will be much more intelligent than us in the future. And he says, how do we survive that? And he also offered a pretty interesting perspective on the differences between kinds of intelligence. I'm quoting the, uh, quoting the article here. Learning is just the first string of Hinton's argument. The second is communicating. Quote, if you or I learn something and want to transfer that knowledge to someone else, we can't just send them a copy, he says. But I can have 10,000 neural networks, each having their own experiences, and any of them can share what they learn instantly. That's a huge difference. It's as if there were 10,000 of us, and as soon as one person learns something, all of us know, this, know it. What does all this add up to? Hinton now thinks there are two types of intelligence in the world, animal brains and neural networks. Quote, it's a completely different form of intelligence, unquote, he says, quote, a new and better form of intelligence, unquote. Yeah, that definitely puts some perspective on where, on, on, I don't want to say the danger, but the potential that uh, we keep thinking of AI as trying to duplicate or model human intelligence in machine form, in, in code form. But of course, just like we make the same mistakes when we try to understand elephant intelligence or, or raven intelligence or or chimpanzee intelligence, we'd it, it can be something totally different and just as power and, and powerful for what it needs to do and what it wants to do. And so when you th when you get that new perspective of like imagine that imagine the human society, human culture, and we're all psychic. That as soon as I learned, as soon as I learned that, hey, look, there's this, uh, the, the, the bakery at the corner of my corner of my street, uh, uh, lost power and they're selling like all of their baked goods for like half off because I need to get rid of it because it is going to spoil. Now everybody in the world knows about that. <laughs> okay. Maybe uh, that, that, okay. I, I, I acknowledge that that's probably colored by the fact that, um, I'm recording this just after lunch. And I did have a really, really exceptional scone at the bakery <laughs> down the street. But, but you, but the thing is the, the idea that there is no, it, between artificial intelligences, if it's engineered in a certain way, there's no hoarding of skills. There's no hoarding of information. All you can have all of these different AIs going off like ants, uh, ants in totally random directions. But as soon as one thing knows it, the entire colony knows it. That's. I don't want to say it's chilling, but that it does give you a certain perspective that uh, I hadn't really considered before. So, but anyway, all, all of this is really important background. He's before we talk about exactly what he's saying in these interviews, he, he's not screaming out, soil green is made from people. What he's doing is he's 
urging caution and restraint in the coming years, partly based on the fact that not that here is a ticking time bomb that is going to blow up and take humanity with it if we don't defuse it in time. It's that there is a possibility that putting these chemicals together in a certain way could cause a, a large explosion. And perhaps we should make sure that we don't do that because explosions, except in the context of an internal combustion engine, oftentimes very, very bad. So, and it's all these interviews, they also make it the, the more context you get, the more you kind of understand where his alarm comes from. Again, the, I, I was kind of disappointed. I've, I've got like two dozen different like editorials and hot takes bookmarked, bookmarked about this. And a lot of them really are as if he managed to escape Google with his life and about to talk about project armistice, the, 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 the hidden secret project to take for, for Google to own every gun, every missile, uh, control our oxygen. It's no, it's, it's, it, this is part of a holistic approach that he has and a, 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 a some total of 75 years of life, uh, life on this planet. Uh, and it's understand like easy to understand why his alarm has been growing. OpenAI and Microsoft have created this stampede to be the next company to make a billion dollars in artificial intelligence and or if you already have a billion dollars like Google to not be blackberried by OpenAI for lack of progress in artificial intelligence. Um, so it's pushing companies to turn what should be just research into monetizable actual products inflicted upon the public without allowing considerations like, you know, safety uh, to delay the, the rush to the ATM. Here's another good quote from the MIT Tech Review article. Until last year, he said, Google acted as a, quote, proper steward, unquote, for the technology, careful not to release something that might cause harm. But now that Microsoft has augmented its Bing search engine with a chatbot challenging Google's core business, Google is racing to deploy the same kind of technology. The tech giants are locked in a competition that might be impossible to stop, Dr. Hinton said. And, you know, because God loves, uh, God loves irony or sarcasm or coincidence, just, uh, just uh, a day ago, uh, either Monday or Tuesday, I'm recording on, uh, on, uh, on Wednesday, uh, Google, uh, Microsoft announced that, hey, we're opening Bing chat to everybody. Everybody can use it now. We're not going to limit it to any, it's. Again, Microsoft is way, way scarier in OpenAI uh, than Google is right now, as far as I'm concerned, because they really are not slowing down and they're not cautioning or conditioning anything. They really, really are just YOLOing their way <laughs> to, 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 to stay ahead of whatever race they think they're in right now. And that can be pretty dangerous. So let's go to what Hinton's three like specific concerns are. And they are pretty simple. First concern is that all of this AI generated content is going to result in humanity eventually becoming unable to tell what's true anymore with chatbots being able to generate articles that have whatever leaning, whatever intention that the owner operator of that chatbot wants. Also the fact that people ask these chatbots uh, questions and whatever answer they get back, they tend to uh, take as the absolute, you know, Google search type truth. It's, it really fuzzes over all those hard edges about truth and, and, and fiction. Uh, number two, there's the huge impact that artificial intelligence and large language models in general are going to have in the job market and the human cost of that. It's, 
Yeah, it's 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 completely unpredictable. And I try to be a little bit philosophical about it because this sort of thing continues has continued to happen over and over and over and over again. And to an extent, I don't know that it's something that can be controlled because you it's I I have this idea that applies to a lot of different things that I refer to as the big bag of money concept, which is that if there's a big bag of money on the table with a sign on it saying that here is a big bag of money, you can take it and there's no, and there's no rules against you taking it and it will be yours to keep. People are going to take that big bag of money. So if there is a technology that will allow you to fire 20% of your workforce, nobody's going to really think about twice about actually implementing that thing. And if there is a technology that doesn't work yet, but it has the potential to let you fire 20% of your workforce, and you've got a billion dollars or trillion dollars in the bank uh, as, as a company, you are going to invest in developing that technology so that you can fire those 20% of your workers. This is, if you've ever wondered why so many companies are investing in self-driving technology, uh, self-driving cars, there it is. You have the ability to fire a great number of people. Uh, you don't have to hire drivers for trucking. You don't have to dri hire drivers for transportation. It is worth uh, it, it is worth this. Uh, it's technology right now that kind of works, and in a world in which kind of works is not nearly good enough for uh, for a technology that can affect public safety to the degree that self driving technology is. Uh, but again, it's worth pursuing because. If we put, they feel as though if they put a, a billion dollars into this, they will eventually get fifty billion dollars back from it. So yeah, it's it's hard to predict, and it's it's easy to understand Dr. Hinton's, I wouldn't say feelings of guilt, but understanding that okay, here is an, an entire industry of people that are now out on the streets, an entire people who are twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven years old who have one hundred and eighty thousand dollars in college debt to train for uh, a, a job that now no longer exists in part because of the, my life's work. Now you start to understand why he has regrets over, uh, over the stuff that he's, uh, he's been researching without knowing really what's going to have. Um, but now we have number three though, as, and we get to the huge threat to humanity. Uh, as far as that goes, he's most concerned about not necessarily about artificial intelligence, but the terrible things that might be built with AI by bad actors. Researchers have ethical barriers, and they don't want to create something that could be used for super villainish evil. Uh, he, uh, in, in another interview or another quote, Hinton says that he gives himself the very, very logical and rational excuse, which is that, look, if I hadn't developed this, someone else would have. Uh, so this, much like Oppenheimer and the folks who worked on the A-bomb, the, the, a world without atomic weapons was no longer a possibility after certain research came out. And so if they didn't develop this, no one, someone else was going to. So it was almost, almost moot. Um, but this is not always going to be in the realm of researchers. There, there are psychopaths out there. Hinton in none of the interviews in any of the interviews that I saw, he didn't use the word psychopath to describe these two people, but he did name specifically Putin and DeSantos as examples of people who are going to exploit artificial intelligence towards any end there that serves their interests and not care about any of the collateral damage. Uh, that's, it's a particularly scary when it comes to someone like Putin or any, anyone who's a dictator, the, the one of the, one of the, uh, core pieces of, of of knowledge about dictatorships is that as soon as you establish yourself as a dictator, 
you know that there is no such thing as a retirement plan. Either you will die in office still holding on to power or you're going to be assassinated. You're going to be overthrown, not put in jail for eight, for, 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 for eight years, uh, time off for good behavior. You are going to be murdered. And so imagine somebody like Putin or, or, or any other, uh, any other dictator you can imagine saying that, well, if I don't, here's something I can build with artificial intelligence that will help me to forestall my own murder and assassination. Are you, is he going to say, no, I, I'm, I'm afraid of the knock on of the unintended consequences of deploying uh, artificial intelligence in this way. I'd much rather take risks and accept the fact that I could be assassinated without this tool. But uh, continuing on that note, uh, Hinton cited the potential for disaster that's represented by AIs that can generate and then execute their own code. Um, he's especially, uh, I'm quoting here from uh, the MIT interview, he is especially worried that people could harness the tools he himself helped breathe life into to tilt the scales of some of the most consequential human experiences, especially elections and wars. Quote, look, here's, look, here's how, here's one way it could all go wrong, he says. We know that a lot of the people who want to use these tools are bad actors like Putin and or DeSantis. We th they want to use them for winning wars or manipulating electorates. Hinton believes that the next step for smart machines is the ability to create their own sub goals, which are interim steps required to take out, carry out a task. What happens, he asks, when that ability is applied to something inherently immoral? Quote, don't think for a moment that Putin wouldn't make hyper-intelligent robots with the goal of killing Ukrainians, he says. He wouldn't hesitate, and if you want them to be good at it, you don't want to micromanage them. You want them to figure out how to do it. He makes a really interesting point a little bit later on about the dangers of artificial general intelligence like these, like, again, the ability to create sub-goals. Uh, one of the incontrovertible checks on the advancement and, uh, and evolution of artificial intelligence is the simple fact that these systems require enormous amounts of computing power and enormous amounts of simple raw energy. Uh, Hinton notes that in biology, there's a, for organisms, there's a sub-goal that usually succeeds very well, and that sub-goal is get more energy. So what happens, he wonders, if an AI can create that sub-goal and then can reroute, reroute the power grid towards its own processing power? What, uh, where, where, where the goalposts, where, where the guardrail exists, where does the guardrail exist then? And maybe a little bit more chillingly, he says that another great sub-goal in biology is to make more copies of itself, <laughs> an organism to reproduce. He says, quote, does that sound good? Now, Hinton, he's not necessarily a pessimist. Hinton made a comparison that's similar to what Sundar Pichai said about a month ago, comparing the development and imposition of limitations on our artificial intelligence research and deployment to the limitations that researchers placed on genetic research in the, uh, back in the 70s, in the early days of that, uh, of that science. Hinton compared artificial intelligence to the international ban on chemical weapons. Quote, it wasn't foolproof, but on the whole, people don't use chemical weapons, unquote, he says. I'm really going to urge you to read the MIT Tech Review interview. It's going to be in the show notes uh, because he presents a simple and understandable explanation of where artificial intelligence is and where it can go. Not just the dangers, but also think about it in a little bit more abstract and you start to get a little hint of daylight 
into what all of this actually means. Uh, for instance, I liked his take on uh, artificial intelligence hallucinations. You know, that's that's when an artificial intelligence makes stuff up because it'll sound factual. Like if you ask a question, eh, I'll make something up, it'll sound right, or creates inferences between two facts that aren't valid, or makes up. Uh, as I found out the first time I used Bard, cites uh, a Boston Globe interview that never existed. Uh, he likens this to hum- the way the humans, you know, BS, you know, and he called that BSing in AI a feature, not a bug. Quote, People's, people always confabulate, he says. Half-truths and misremembered details are hallmarks of human conversation. Quote, confabulation is a signature of human memory. These models are doing something just like people. The difference is that humans usually confabulate more or less correctly, says Hinton. To Hinton, making stuff up isn't the problem. Computers just need a bit more practice. We also expect computers to be either right or wrong, not something in between. Quote, we don't expect them to blather the way the people do, says Hinton. When a computer does that, we think it made a mistake. But when a person does that, that's just the way people work. The problem is most people have a hopelessly wrong view of how people work. Unquote. Yeah, that's it. I, God, I, I love that so much. There's, this is, it really does get into what I love about technology. I, um, it really, technology, it's a, something that humans create. And I think that just like art, just like literature, it is a way of us trying to understand ourselves through this medium. And artificial intelligence is so interesting to me because a lot of it really does come down to uh, if we're trying to create something that can do what humans do is if we may, if we succeed at that, are we really intelligent when we do that? Like how, how are we going to, how are we going to define intelligence that way? Uh, How much of what make, how much of our quirks are just part of the, chaotic nature of, uh, of a living organism and how much of it is the software that we're running, so to speak. Uh, I, I think that there's going to be a uh, boy, I'd like to go back to school and make up a phony baloney, uh, <laughs> masters or doctorate, uh, category of just sociology, psychology of, of the human brain as a computer's engineering project. Because the more, the more we look at ourselves in the abstract, the less magical we seem to be as beings, and the more we seem to be components of a huge computer known as planet Earth. Apologies to Douglas Adams and Deep Thought, of course. Well, this, of course, this, uh, this, uh, all these interviews didn't happen in a vacuum. This was, it really does show how, you know, getting back to chaos, how chaotic and energetic this whole field is uh, the uh, chairperson of the uh, FTC here in the United States uh, wrote a uh, an op-ed for the New York Times yesterday outlining a scheme to regulate artificial intelligence uh, Senator Chuck Schumer has been uh, has laid groundwork for regulation of artificial intelligence uh, last week uh, through uh, draft I think draft legislation uh, Kamala Harris today, is discussing artificial intelligence in a meeting with Google, Microsoft, OpenAI, and Anthropic. For all, all four of those CEOs are meeting with the vice president today. Um, so, 
this is this is why every time they've been speaking about this, particularly to when I speak to general audiences, not folks like you who are interested in uh, technology blogs and technology podcasts, I try to put the brakes on doom and gloom that this is a, this is like a, an, uh, an uninspected nuclear power plant. It's going to blow up and, and kill, <laughs> render the entire Eastern seaboard uninhabitable or anything like that. It's, I, I do have faith and I can't offer any proof behind this faith, but I do have faith that just as in the seventies, when researchers uh, were starting to crack the code uh, of uh, the human genome and the question became an abstract question became nonetheless very, very pressing. Like, well, does that mean that's going to be okay for us to manipulate the human genome to, and what, if so, what are the circumstances? Is it okay for someone to manipulate the genome because they want a a child with blue eyes and blonde hair? How how is this going to affect uh, eugenics and a hundred, a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand other questions. And they got together and they basically decided here is what's going to be acceptable and what's not going to be acceptable. And if you, uh, if you decide to break any of these rules in the name of science or towards a selfish goal, like a mega maniacal uh, dictator would, you are going to be a pariah. Your people are going to stay, get in line to stop you from doing that. And I believe that the stage at which artificial intelligence becomes a very real and practical danger to all of us is so far in the future that we have time to figure that, that stuff out. Also, we have the we have the examples of what has happened by uh, being too hands off with companies like Microsoft and Google and Facebook and Apple uh, since the 1990s. The uh, they did allow these a lot of really wonderful things to happen uh, free from oversight and regulation. However, this created uh, the, the the current surveillance state that we're living in. And I think that a lot of the lawmakers who grew up with the internet, many of whom uh, grew up in their adult, uh, spent their adult lives using the internet, appreciate that this is a point, there's, there's a window of opportunity for controlling artificial intelligence, controlling research and commercialization of artificial intelligence to put rules in place that is going to expire if we don't actually get in on this. And I'm very, very pleased by seeing so many researchers who are on totally on board with this. There, It's not a short list. You, The CEOs of Google, CEOs of uh, OpenAI, uh, everybody seems to be saying that they're, they are themselves raising the alarm that, hey, you guys need to regulate this. <laughs> we, we're, we're enjoying making all this money. We enjoy all this pos- all these possibilities, but you're going to have to regulate this before it gets out of hand. And I, there are now a whole lot of lawmakers who are kind of getting, getting in line to do that. Before we quit, uh, a couple of uh, kind of related things uh, in the past few days that show us that Although ChatGPT and its ability to displace displace world uh, workers has been getting all the headlines, a lot of the most beneficial things and most tangible impacts of artificial intelligence are just enhancements to existing products. Google Photos, for instance, is uh, has been testing a lot uh, a new feature, uh, which allows you to have more way more powerful queries. This has uh, when you're doing searches for photos. This is something that Google has always been. Uh, kind of trumpeting as as their their bread and butter in AI research natural language processing basically understanding really complex intent from very very simple uh, la- simple human language so now instead of saying give me, give instead of just saying kitties you can say uh, 
Kitty's uh, Kitty's uh, on Christmas late at night, <laughs> or uh, pictures and pictures in which uh, my sisters are happy and together, and it will actually extrapolate a whole bunch of different triggers and a whole bunch of different keynotes uh, from from that to actually return those kind of results. Um, this this was a story that's kind of held over from last week, but it's, it gets even more interesting. I think where uh, Google Workspaces, it's uh, they've added a new query box, or at least they've taken the the search box or the, the in the Google Sheets and elsewhere, and made it a lot more powerful. Where it's not just for searching for content that's inside this Google Sheet; it's also kind of like a unified help. Like if you want to find out how to do something, like where 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 inside the menu structure is this command buried? You can type it into the uh, this feature called the tool finder, and it will find that menu item in that tool for you. Or you can give it uh, something that you're trying to do, and it will show you recommended actions that can help you do that, including recent actions that you took in the document. It will uh, get give you suggestions based on things that are related to the query that you're saying. If you're saying uh, like uh, delete column C, it will actually be able to delete column C. And all you had to do was just type in that request. So that's a, that's, that's really, really interesting. And it's hard, particularly in the context of what we've been talking about for the past uh, half hour here. It's hard not to see that as a placeholder, that this is where uh, Bard is going to uh, show up in the near future or in 20 sometime in 2023 2024 where you'll be able to it won't be just this little narrow little box it will be like an entire line where you just type in uh go through all my email create a spreadsheet that goes through all my gmail and lists uh, creates creates a a tabular uh, layout of every email from people that i work with that have talked about where i could where where they're going to work next because this company is going underground and then boom you get a, you get a table of, of of new job prospects this is the sort of stuff that uh is the least scary and the most delightful when you have an artificial intelligence and a human being working hand in hand getting things done that uh that would be way 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 beyond any one person's capability um part of the def- part of the difficulty and danger of technology is when it winds up just in the hands of people who already have a lot of power. So the ability to do an, run an analysis like that on a database of a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand messages, that is something that until very recently was just beyond the reach of an individual. You've, if you have, uh, if uh, imagine a company that has five people on staff and another company in the same field that has 5,000 people on staff, that larger company can do an analysis of customer feedback uh, like that very, very, it's very, very easily because you simply, uh, you simply send your minions and th- throw your minions at that or throw some money at that. Whereas it's just not available to someone with, who is a staff of three or four. Whereas uh, chat clients, uh, large language models, you can simply do that. If you have someone who is sufficiently skilled in understanding uh, how query language works, how to shape these queries and these uh, and these specifications, now suddenly they can compete with someone who has 5,000 5, employees. That's a wonderful thing. And there's so many examples of that. I, that's what I t- try to have my faith in, that I know that uh, no advance in technology has not come at a human cost. But when you look back, hundred years later, you can see how in the long run humanity was benefited by, by, by all the pain that the people who had to live through it had to go through.
Well, that's uh, let's let's end that discussion of artificial intelligence there. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about Google and Apple working together. Ain't that a funny thing? Back after this. Well, from hypothetical dangers to humanity to uh, preventing actual known existing dangers to humanity. Isn't that comfortable that we're actually not chasing phantoms? Now we're chasing against people that actually want to hurt, hurt us. Okay, but there are, there are two interesting pieces of uh, news this week. Apple and Google are teaming up once again to do something to benefit humanity, responding to an international humanitarian crisis. The first time we, we saw that logo of the Apple logo next to the Google logo with that wall <laughs> line between the two of them was attached to their joint effort to support COVID contact tracing back in 2000 across all iOS and Android devices. Now they are coming together for something that is also really important, which is to address the danger that all of these uh, air tags and other Bluetooth trackers prevent uh, present to people's safety. Uh, as you all know, the air tags particularly are being misused for for stalking and, and, and theft so that people if you want to keep tabs on uh, on an ex-spouse uh you slip an air tag inside their inside their jacket or or, or their bag or something you are cruising cruising a parking lot and because you're shopping for a specific car that you're trying to that you need to steal you find one you slap an air tag on the bumper and then you track it to where it's being parked overnight and then you go and steal it this is none of this is good pr for apple and also, none of this is exactly how Apple or Tile or Samsung or any of these other people assumed that these uh, these tracking tags would be used. It's supposed to help you find your keys, man. And it all went so wrong. People people suck. So uh, Apple and Google uh, team together to f- create a system so that will be built into uh, all uh, Apple device, all Apple phones, uh, all uh, all Android phones that will detect unwanted location tracker trackers. It's a draft specification that they came up with and wrote together, and they've 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 posted, and uh, it's it offers best practices and instructions for. Uh, tag manufacturers uh, should they choose to build these capabilities into their products and to make sure that will work with the solution that uh, that Google and uh, Apple are putting inside all of their phones. Um, they've already got uh, most of the other makers on board. Samsung, Tile, Chipolo, Eufy Security, and Pebblebee uh, have all expressed support for this draft specification according to the press release that Google and Apple uh, released at the same time with quotes from each other each other's companies. And it it seems to be a very very simple and limited sort of solution. It's not designed to create like a unified find me network or anything anything like that. It's not something that law enforcement will be able to tap into or or, or create new worries. Uh, its goals are very very simple. It's just designed to implement unauthorized tracking detection and alerts across platforms. It's there to be able to de- detect a tracker when it's been separated from its owner also helps someone to locate a tracker that's traveling with them. So not only get alerted that, Hey, there's a tracker that you don't own that's traveling with you, but also to help you to locate it. This is a damn sight better than what Apple gave the world uh, months after, uh, after they introduced the air tag they gave. They, if you have an iPhone, of course, Boy, they'll give you all kinds of help uh, and keep you safe and help you find this this uh, this phantom tracker that's inside your car somewhere. If you have an Android device, well, there's an app that you can download and install on your Android device if you know it exists. And then you can kind of use it, although it's not nearly as useful as what Apple builds into all their phones. So, yeah, we're finally getting some, some parity here. And uh, so 
Yeah, it, it's it's a draft specification right now, as I said. In addition, to the, so they got about six months to, sorry, three months to get feedback from device manufacturers. Uh, they've also uh, shopped for input from a lot of different safety and advocacy groups as they develop this specification. In the, Apple's press release includes quotes from representatives from the National Network to End Domestic Violence, uh, as well as the Center for Democracy and Technology. Uh, it's also, it's a pretty, I read through the specification. A lot of it is very, very dry, of course, but uh, surprised to see that not only does it uh, su- support uh, the common Bluetooth trackers, but it's designed to be best tra- best practices for all kinds of trackers. It includes recommendations for trackers that rely on GPS, Wi-Fi, cell location, even mentions uh, crowdsourcing solutions. And again, how to make sure that whatever it is you're developing is not going to be exploited by bad actors. All I can say is that it's absolutely about time. I I was really, really surprised to see Apple get into this because, okay, you've got this $30 device. There's not a, there can't be a whole lot of money in it. And this is not necessarily uh, a product that people have been clamoring for. And inexpensive little devices are not really something that you associate with Apple, is it? What you do associate with Apple is safety, privacy, and security. And I was kind of shocked that Apple had given such little consideration to how these things can be abused. Now, to be sure, the ability, uh, having the ability inside every single phone to be able to detect a tracker that is uh, that doesn't belong to you, that's nearby or traveling with you, it's going to mess things up if you've been using uh, an AirTag to uh, like have a- additional uh, uh additional anti-theft security on your bike for instance uh, a lot of people i know they 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 slip in it they they hide it on their bike so that if it gets stolen they could track down where that bike has gone that's certainly so what uh, what apple and google are doing here is certainly going to help the person who's stealing the bike to detect that oh there's a tracker that i don't own that's traveling with me so i i bet i best i best uh i best stop here in this dairy queen parking lot and look for the tracker and remove it before i continue on to the to the chop shop or the pawn shop or wherever it is i'm going to be trading this two thousand dollar bike for eight dollars worth of meth i'm guessing i don't know what the rate of exchange is but i'm i'm guessing it's eight dollars to two thousand dollars it's it's not it's something that would make you wince if you pay two thousand dollars for a bike i'm certain so, but that's that's okay because Apple has always said that this is not an anti-theft solution. This is also not a way to track individual people. This is again, you lose your keys, you you leave your, you leave your you leave your bag behind someplace. This will help you find out, figure out where it is that you left it behind, and maybe get it back. It is not for uh, not for uh, stalking, tracking down, and ex- exacting street justice from uh, the criminal element that might have stolen or jacked your jacked your wallet or whatever like that. Now, in the in the virtual world, we have a subtle change that Google is making, but one that makes a lot of sense. We're all used to the idea of seeing that little lock icon in the address bar of uh, of web browsers. These things have been around since the 1990s, since the HTTPS specification was supported by Mozilla. Uh, however, Google has announced that the, the Google Chrome team, they've announced that they're going to be removing that lock dingus from the address bar, starting with Chrome edition 117 that's going to be released in uh, in September. And the the blog post in which they explain it is actually very, very rational, That in a case that's actually quite overdue. 
having this little lock indicator was important back in the 90s when HTTPS was something new and wasn't supported by very many websites to let you know that, hey, look, the connection between uh, between uh, your web browser, this web browser and this website is secure and can't be intercepted. And this uh, this uh, site is uh, is who they represent. They, they have the correct certificate so that you can trust that the, this site is who they who or what they uh, they claim to be. However, uh, a lot of things have changed since the 1990s. I don't know if you've looked around. Uh, Bill Clinton was a fun president. We've had other presidents since then. And now it really doesn't mean what people seem to think it means. It doesn't mean that, hey, you can trust this website. Hey, you're not being targeted by uh, not targeted for fraud. Uh, no, your passwords aren't going to be uh, grabbed. Your traffic isn't going to be observed uh, because nearly all phishing sites are using HTTPS this, these days. Uh, and so and the lock, lock icon doesn't doesn't care. It doesn't it's not there to verify that. Uh, that this uh, online store is an actual online store. It's not even necessarily there to verify that your uh, your Citibank web the Citibank website is actually Citibank. All it indicates is that you have an HTTP you have a secure HTTPS connection, and that whatever has to be done to inflict to to cause that that lock icon to appear, those technical requirements have been met. Uh, so Google uh, did a study and they found out that uh, in 2021 and they discovered they, that uh, only about 11% of the people who are in the study correctly understood exactly what that lock icon means. So they said that, okay, we got to change this. So they, they're going to stop using it. They're going to be replacing it with what they call a variant of the tune icon. I did not know what the tune icon was until I saw the blog post and they have a, have a, 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 an illustration of it. It looks like kind of like what you would expect a settings thing to mean uh, and that that's the important the value of that is actually multiple it's not just to not like not not help you not trick you into thinking that the lock uh, the lock means that you're absolutely safe it also means that you shouldn't see this as an indicator and then simply trust simply take take an inference based on that you're supposed to click it's because it looks like it's a settings button you you click on it to get more information to get the details uh on uh, on what this on what this site or what this thing what what is this is all about uh that's exactly the behavior that happens right now in your current edition of chrome i just clicked on one of these lock icons that told me this connection is secure here's information about the cookies and site data uh, this is you. You click on this to get more information about what your connection is like. It's not there to say all is well. Don't even think about this. Uh, also, the like lock icon implies trust. The word it, it implies trustworthiness, and so this gets rid of all that sort of stuff. So it's you know it's something that I never really thought about, and I'll be honest that I've I've sort of trained myself to think that hey the lock icon means everything is good, even though. Uh, academically, I know that that's not the case. So yeah, it, it's these little, little tweaks to user interface that can have all the, uh, all, all the, uh, all the effects in the world. And so this is probably, a, probably a long overdue thing. It doesn't solve everything, but it solves a little thing. Well, I think that's going to wrap things up for this week. Flo uh, is going to be back with us next week. Next week is going to be a pretty cool show because that's going to be uh, our show about everything that happened at Google I.O., and they're going to the Google's going to have a lot of explaining to do and a lot of confidence to try to instill in everybody 
this is the, the stakes for this show are going to be a lot bigger than they normally are. Uh, and it's going to, we're gonna have a lot of fun things to talk about it. And until then, I'm sure that Flo would love for you to see the stuff that she's writing for Gizmodo. In the meantime, go to flowrights.tech for a conglomeration of all that sort of stuff. As for me, go to, uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, just spell my last name. I'm Anatko on both I H N A T K O. You can hear what I've been saying on Boston public radio at WGBHnews.org. listening to these things live or later. And as always, you can help support our show and everything on the relay.fm network by becoming a member, head on over to relay.fm slash material to sign up and gain access to special members only episodes produced by Flo and myself and all of relays contributors. I'll have a special episode as a solo, and I'm going to be talking a lot about what, <laughs> what, uh, what, uh, what, uh, what AI and large language models mean to me and my business and my future on this earth. Expect a lot of whiskey and crying. Well, that's going to be it for this week. Thanks so much for listening to us this time. I hope you'll be listening again next week. Until then, everybody, please have a happy, safe, and healthy seven days. Bye-bye.